Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Guten Morgen, also it's welcome in the drug news. Ich bin Visa Grilla Economist und dies ist V für Welles. How's that for German? <laughs> yeah, you guys didn't know that, did you? For those that don't know, I just said good morning, everyone. Welcome to Rogue News. I'm V the Grilla Economist and this is V for Velas. You're listening to us live on this Friday morning. We are on the eve of New Year's Eve and lots of things going on, uh, many things happening. Uh, Top G, aka Andrew Tate, got erected, got arrested for got human erected. All right, erected <laughs> for human trafficking. It's amazing human trafficking. And then they were so very quick to uh, put out the uh, arrest videos. And to this day, <laughs> to this day, <laughs> to this day, I've yet to see the Paul Pelosi videos. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I, I've yet to see, with all the surveillance, all the cameras surrounding Paul Pelosi's house and the police body cameras, I've yet to see Paul Pelosi play hide the hammer. But we get to plus, see Tate uh, and his brother getting arrested. Well, plus, for Tate was in. Trafficking. Uh, he was in Romania, Bulgaria, or something. So it's like not only Romania. did they have the well, film right away, yeah, well, it's another country, a castle state. Yeah, exactly. Halfway around the world. They're able to package out that arrest video and blast it out. Gee, okay. You know, it's, it's like my analytical brain, my spidey senses are tingling. And let's be honest here. We're talking about a, we're talking about a, a um, you know, a, a, uh, a regime that put uh, um, Julian Assange for the same thing, you know, rape and right. human trafficking. Okay. So it's, this, this is where we're, and, and we're living in the world of Gizzy, Gizzy Maxwell. All right. Jizzy is able to, uh, to uh, traffic to no one and go to jail for it. <laughs> oh man, we, well, we are not. De- we are not. We are not defending Tate, folks. We're just asking. No, questions. no, we're not defending. We're just asking questions because if he's guilty, then one hundred percent throw the book at him. Right? Throw the book at him. But if this falls apart, man, ooh. Ooh man, that's gonna be rough. This falls apart, and there's really there's no not there's nothing there. That's I mean, people already have lost, you know, trust in the institutions. And let's be honest here: the first initial quote unquote human trafficking call came from the United States Embassy. Okay, it was a request from the U.S. Embassy. So let's get into it, man. I don't know what you want to talk about, Velas. But what's, what's the old uh, what, what's the old joke? I often say that that 
people in the DEA for years have said the only drug dealers who get arrested are those who are not on the government's payroll. That's it. It's like you're trafficking people without us being involved. Somebody go yeah, stop exactly. him. <laughs> well, and also, also, also hot off the press this morning on Zero Hedge was uh, BlackRock and State Street advisors admit to signing uh, net zero pledges they don't actually act on. Oh, that's what wonderful. are the odds that private equity would not follow through on all of these wondrous uh, benefit of humanity well things they claim they're, invo- they're involved in? Because they care so much about us. Don't you feel the love? I do feel the love. The love is immense. Right, so greetings, everyone, from the Midwest of the United States, where we have gone from 10 degrees to 60. <laughs> I love global C- warming. <laughs> told CJ before the show, I had to turn on the air conditioning on the way to the gym yesterday just because of the humidity. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure the, the snow is forthcoming in another week. But we've had a, we've had a reprieve in the weather. I've also noticed diesel's pushing $6 a gallon. We're, we're going to feel that when it comes to Cheerios. Oh, uh, so I've got a, uh, most of today's program is kind of, uh, I wouldn't say esoteric, but uh, but uh, uh, to quote from, uh, what do you call it, almost fam- the movie Almost Famous, it's a thought piece. Um, but a couple of items before that. The first is as we move into 2023, uh, which will be shortly, um, Keep your eye on upcoming stories you're probably going to see in the news. Uh, number one, about hydrogen. Uh, there's a lot of things about hydrogen, both how it's produced, how it's stored, where it might be used, etc. Whether that's for cars, trucks, aircraft, uh, locomotive engines, ships. Uh, you're also probably going to see more stories about nuclear, and I use the word loosely, uh, breakthroughs in 2023. Um, nothing like uh, crises with power grids and supply chain issues to move folks into new technologies after panicking the hell out of them. Um, Plus, when all the world's right billionaires own that technology, the profit margins will be considerable. Uh, Tuesday of this week, I posted an article from Aviation Week about what the aerospace industry can learn about hydrogen from other sectors. It's a pretty good good article. Uh, I've been keeping my eye on the hydrogen topic for years, and uh, I also Mm -hmm. passed along some intel to V recently about the trucking industry or the the industrial application industry's uses of hydrogen. Uh, There's been a number of different developments and firms, whether it's the injectors, the fuel tanks, etc. Now, to be equally honest with all of you, and because a whole bunch of people smarter than me uh, at my customers for a number of years uh, told me years ago, and I know I've mentioned this in other shows, um, you know, they basically said it's going to be it's going to be hydrogen in the future. It has to be electric is just a pit stop on the way there. Uh, yep. You know, one of the one of the comments they made to me was we would tell you they want folks to adopt electric to see how crappy that is so that they are more willing to go towards hydrogen. Um, yes. It, if you review the development, you know, in, in New York City, Vellas, in New York City, during the when they got blasted by the snowstorm, okay, they had electric powered sanitation trucks. In New York, the sanitation trucks they double as plows, okay, for yes. the streets. They were breaking down left and right, man. If they, they didn't were explode, just going dead. If they didn't explode. <laughs> So you, as you read these these stories, folks, you can feel uh, something is coming. And I know uh, Brendan O'Connell has made comments uh, a couple of times about he's he's quite serious when he says it with his usual bitterness. Um, I I say it from 
being formerly involved with some research and development organizations myself, uh, there's there's always stuff that's on the shelf, folks. Uh, and yeah. and you know, without sounding like a globalist, there there are very good reasons why they can't release certain capabilities and certain technologies. Not just because it's it it has some bugs and they've got to fix it. Um, if we wanted to wait uh, to get the bugs out, we'd have software that works the first time you download it to your computer. Um, but right. it, it would be unbelievably disruptive. Uh, but if you go, for instance, if you were to go take a look at the Honda main corporate website, uh, not the car uh, website for Honda, but the main corporate website, because they make lawnmowers yep. and motorcycles and everything else. Uh, it's very interesting um, that uh, the type of tech that Honda is coming up with, including um little little like like if you remember from back to the future little mr fusion kind of things that actually develop hydrogen gas and then can be stored in in their little units like imagine what tesla did with stationary batteries and things for your home honda is doing that kind of technology for um the use of hydrogen and they're also uh working on some small private jets and things that have yeah. dual use engines and the list goes on now because i'm kind go ahead Real quick, man. Remember, like, you, like I don't know, man. It was like maybe two years ago, a year ago, right? Where you and I were talking about, and we said that, hey, why isn't it that the Japanese automotive manufacturers—they're not going hard in on on electric? No, they're not. During that time, what, when what was Toyota doing? They were showcasing their, you know, co-developed Yamaha V8 that pumps out like 500, 600 horsepower, revs to like sixteen thousand RPMs, you know, and they're and they're showboating it, and and. Because they know what the future is, man. You know, and and, and, and same thing with uh, with uh, you know Hyundai uh, Hyundai Kia Motor uh, Corp. Same thing. So a lot of the the manufacturers are like, yeah, we're not so crazy about electric. And look at the Italians, right? Every single uh, supercar manufacturer in Italy is like, no, we're not going to do the whole uh, twenty thirty. No more uh, internal combustion engines. We're going to sidestep that. So this is interesting to say the least. And and what's these supercar companies you know connected to? Yeah, they're not big like the mainstream manufacturers, but dude, they are connected to a lot of wealth, wealthy private equity. They are. They also have the ability to to fast prototype products more quickly than the larger corporations can do. Uh, they also take on more risk. But yes, they're they're able to to get stuff into the field. I mean, folks, it's worked that way for years. I mean, Ford made a very big deal when they when they built the Ford Taurus back in the 1980s about, hey, uh, we bought everything from Porsches to Mercedes to to Chevrolet products and tore them down to the last bolt, looked at how they worked, and incorporated those features into the Ford Taurus where it made sense. But the truth is, every automaker's done that for years. They all study each other's stuff. Now, for many years... <laughs> Whether it was, uh, this is why I was always a fan, and I know V shares my enthusiasm, um, Audi uh, and Subaru. Because they do, uh, they're involved in so much off-road racing with all-wheel drive systems. Yep. They've absolutely beat the hell out of those systems since the 1970s. And yep. so if you buy a, a all-wheel drive platform from one of those automakers, you know it's solid because they've beat the shit out of it before they ever put it on the market. So... Yeah. A number of these firms can experiment with this tech first before the big the big firms want to take the risk of incorporating it. And that's the other thing, too, is after having worked in the product lifecycle management universe and the different software packages that are used to design and develop products, 
the the design windows for these things take a long time. And I know when we say, well, the adoption of hydrogen, what have you, this is a little different than pumping uh, propane or natural gas into a, a diesel engine. That you can do pretty straightforward without a whole lot of reworking of, of the different components. But for what we're discussing about hydrogen, it's it's a radical departure. I mean, everything has to be, I wouldn't say redesigned, but you've got to look at everything you're using from the fuel lines to the tanks that hold the fuel to the injectors, to the way the engine operates, especially the engine management uh, control software. The list goes on. There's a whole bunch of things. So but you want to know something really cool, it. right? You want to know something really cool. It's If you think about it, it's, you know, from a performance standpoint, it's not that hard or difficult to do. Case in point is this, right? In terms of hydrogen, you can, you know, in racing applications, right? If I wanted to on one of my, uh, like, especially for my track car, right now my, tra my track car... It could run E85. I can switch between E85 or 93, and I can I can switch it to various uh, levels of E85. And in order for me to at that time do an e E85 flex fuel kit, I of course change the pumps, injectors, fuel lines, and um, and the uh, and the module that allows me to to switch over to E85. That whole upgrade was seventeen hundred bucks. Not bad, okay. Especially from a performance standpoint. and this is for like performance specific right and now we also know there, there's you know racing fuel cells you know you do a racing fuel cell with an e85 flex fuel kit you're looking at like three thousand dollars again these are not mass produced these are race specific and whatnot so that's not bad where you can take a car from 500 horsepower 600 horsepower and push it north of a thousand horsepower right you would need e85 in order to do that you can't do that on regular pump gas now check this out with hydrogen, if you mass produce it, there will be aftermarket flex fuel kits where you can retrofit your internal combustion engines to run off of hydrogen. It's it's going to be available. That's going to be the cool part. Yes. And it's it will be interesting to see where this goes. Because obviously, as I've seen this with the, the diesel engine uh, industry, where I've had quite a bit of activity, folks, um, Introducing a gas into or or a uh, a near a near vaporous gas into a combustion engine or a compression engine, as is the case with diesel, um, it's just it's just that much more efficient. Because what's what you know, you're taking a liquid gasoline, you're pumping it through. It's not like it was with carburetors. You're pumping it through a fuel injector, which is what trying to turn it into a vapor, and then depending on who the auto manufacturer is, swirl the fuel in in the cylinder so that it's evenly dispersed cylinder comes up you've got pressure you ignite the the spark plug you have your explosion pushes the piston down if if you're already working with a gas and and hydrogen is about as perfect a gas as you can get yeah the the possibilities are endless and they're you know i uh the the uh, byproduct or the the outcome of the process in the engine is water vapor um yep or, or pretty much nothing. I mean, it's it's when you burn hydrogen. Which also explains, Velas, which also explains Nestle and other large conglomerates' mad rush to get water. It's not because water is going scarce. Water rights, especially if you're going to run off of hydrogen, that's going to be the next, uh, uh, you know, oil depository of the future. You you raise an interesting point because, and I, I did post on on Discord. This week, the the Bill Burr uh, comedic routine about uh, Bill making fun of the the Nestle executive who 
where he was talking about Hillary Clinton and others attending Bilderberger meetings. And of course, the interviewer is getting very uncomfortable. And he's like, have you seen this guy from Nestle? He, he wants to control all the water. You sell chocolate. Yeah. You're supposed to be making children happy. Not sounding like a mad villain. But yeah, if you watch the documentaries, folks, they're out there on, I think Netflix has it. I know Voodoo, V-U-D-U has it, uh, about uh, Nestle, the company. Uh, oh, and thank you, uh, CJ, for that, because uh, Cummins is a fine Indiana company, and I did I did work with them once. Um, but uh, there's an excellent documentary about the practices Nestle's been using to get their hands on and take advantage of uh, water rights and farmers and others in the northeast of the United States and other parts of the United States. I mean, they're they're causing real problems by tying up and preventing people's access to water. And to V to V's point. Uh, the parallel with that is, is that, um, of course, you usually want seawater, uh, but but good mineral water and similar would be yet another uh, another another option for them to control us all. Uh, Mary in Japan, uh, welcome both for the time zone and the fact you made it. Um, so final final comment on this this uh, narrative we've been on is. Uh, because I, I did used to and still do research a lot of things, um, I actually remember looking through Microfish in college. Uh, I was doing uh, some research for something that was was based in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I started coming up uh, with the New York Times and other, other East Coast newspapers for the 1920s and 1930s. Um, there were a ton of advertisements for electric truck makers. They used to use electric trucks during those years, especially in metropolitan areas, to deliver, you know, milk or other products to, to various stores or people that were living living there in the city. And those firms went out of business because electric was just not viable uh, against the internal combustion engine. Plus, the other thing is, yeah. much like now, you had to have a ton of batteries, which weighed down the truck. And, you know, we've been here before. Has the technology improved? Yes, but we're using more and more exotic materials for these electric vehicles. And I know I've said it on several shows. It's not just the exploding batteries and the other things we've said. I know folks who are EMS, emergency, you know, ambulance people and similar. They've got laminated cards that if they have to use the jaws of life or whatever in a car accident, they've got to be very careful about how they pry open an electric vehicle. Because if they crack that battery open, yep. it's going to start releasing gas. A, which is explosive, and B, will kill the occupants before you can get them out of there. So right. anyway, food food for thought. So uh, the JFK topic, uh, always <clears throat> a fan favorite. Um, please recall my comments on a prior show about uh, Brendan O'Connell's take on the JFK topic, as well as my own thoughts on why Tucker Carlson all of a sudden rolled out a bombshell story on, on Fox News on that topic. And by the way, uh, much like uh, V's comment at the beginning of the show about we have color corrected video of Tate being arrested, but we still don't have any film of Paul Pelosi. Um, I love how every time uh, Fox News says something that doesn't fit with the woke narrative, the other networks absolutely lose their minds. Tucker Carlson drops a bombshell about JFK and we don't even have crickets, which yeah. is a head scratcher. <laughs> Why is that? Um so along those lines, how many of you have noticed the sudden plethora, I know I have, of new JFK-related disclosures and theories hitting various media venues lately? Now, what did I say on prior shows about the equivalent of a living machine who protects and distracts from these types of disclosures? We now have news out there of President Nixon and the Nixon tapes asking questions about the 
assassination prior to Watergate and actually his concerns by Dick Nixon, President Nixon, uh, on those uh, White House tapes that the Watergate investigation could lead to disclosures about the JFK assassination, which no one needed to hear, unquote. Um, we have news releases about obscure CIA files purporting to show that uh, Oswald was a CIA asset. The list goes on. Now, let's be clear on one aspect of, of the thing about Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was part of a CIA program. Now, the program he was part of, and there were somewhere between 12 to 15 of these guys, it was a series of false defections of Americans into the Soviet Union and other Eastern European countries to try and flush out a major Soviet mole, an intelligence operative, or basically a traitor inside U.S. intelligence who was feeding the Soviet Union information. And it was driving Dulles at the CIA nuts because everything they did to try and find this leaker, they couldn't find them. So they, they had a series of false defections, fake defections, of people into the Soviet Union and other Soviet bloc countries to try and force this mole to start looking through files and other things about these individuals to help Soviet intelligence figure out are these defections real or not. Now, let me walk you through this in a different way. Major newspapers and media organizations always write obituaries for famous people well in advance. That way they only need to tidy up a fact or two uh, and then post it when the person finally does pass away. It's gone on for years, and occasionally, uh, thanks to the more electronic nature of our media, they even publish an obituary sometimes before the person has died. Uh, when I worked in management consulting, it wasn't uncommon for my teams and I to be asked to work up two diametrically opposed narratives, depending on what senior leaders of that firm or the federal agency in question wanted to pursue. Once they figured out the mood of the board of directors or their senior leadership, they picked the one they needed. Now, trust me on this. They've pre-prepared Kennedy releases already, waiting when they need them, depending on the degree of required distraction. For me, I can always tell when some JFK story or researcher has done something that scared the powers that be as they start releasing all sorts of new correlations of the correlations they know will get the public's attention, like one of my favorites that came out a year or two ago about Marilyn Monroe and the alien topic and JFK. I'm dead serious on that. So uh, that, Marilyn was killed because she was about to disclose uh, the alien agenda with JFK, and they both had to get whacked. That was a storyline that was released about two years ago. <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> uh would it call it nothing like Marilyn and aliens to distract the public? If they could work in Bigfoot, uh, they would find a way to do it. So just uh, keep an eye on that one. Well, Sasquatch well. was supposedly her secret lover. I don't know if you knew that, right? The, and and was working for Sam Giancana, and it was it was Colonel <laughs> Mustard in the library with a candlestick. <laughs> and that and the guy who was the uh, the the original progenitor of Vikram Yoga was behind it as well. Oh, let's let's throw in the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, if you remember that guy from the 1970s <laughs> with the pink Rolls Royces. That's it, man. <laughs> the Bhagwan. Oh, baby. Oh, and John Michael Karma about your references to the church committee. Um, I think it was Senator Church. Uh, he genuinely was trying to get to the bottom of things, but it has since been uh, released by, by people's... Um, memoirs and things that uh, the the investigations of the church committee were completely de derailed by U.S. intelligence and used as yet another opportunity to distract. Uh, but anyway, um, so 
what am I, or my main focus today uh, is a little out there, but just bear with me. Um, how does the alternative theory on the Rosicrucians or the Rosicrucian movement relate to the book Report from Iron Mountain and Silicon Valley? So strap in. You may need to listen to this a second time. Um, the Chinese tactician Sun Tzu, or in the actual Asian pronunciation, Sun Tzu, stated a very clear takeaway from his works that many people have read, but it's something that's often skipped. Um, that being to engage in war against other parties is essentially a failure of the guidance he gave. Everyone fixates on his guiding principles and conducting war, but misses the point he said at the beginning of his writings. The point is to achieve your goals as a state or a city-state through careful and effective political means, only relying on military conflict for brief periods to achieve your goals. At the same time, we have to remember he was referencing the Chinese city-state system from many thousands of years ago. Uh, the net of Sun Tzu being conflict was to be carefully managed by truly good leaders to preserve the state. The purposes or goals of political or tribal entities was far different than what we faced the last 500 years. Now, one could equally manipulate Hindenburg's famous saying that war is politics by other means into war or its preparation is economics by other means. That last little item is very germane to the report from Iron Mountain, which we'll get to in a bit. I'm going to use today's program to walk you through recent theories about the Rosicrucians and then how that correlates to this book. We've mentioned Iron Mountain before on the show, and I'm going to get a little bit more into it today, and how these ideas or outcomes have been accelerated by design regarding the world we live in. The last item about Silicon Valley is not entirely about Silicon Valley per se, but it does relate for two very critical reasons. Uh, the first is Silicon Valley has the best people with knowledge of high-speed computer processors and advanced software, including partial and true artificial intelligence. And it's why the U.S. intelligence community sustains such a presence up in Northern California. It's also why when the National Security Administration built that massive information inhaler up in Utah, all the Silicon Valley firms involved around some of the most intensive non-disclosure agreements ever written. Why was that? Well, because the computer chips and the software in that facility are unlike anything the public can imagine or use. That technology was not to be released to the public by the firms who created it for a number of years per the agreement they had with the NSA. Many billionaires in Silicon Valley, and this is the second angle, and their friends in private equity are highly interested and often dabble in social engineering studies, if not actual social engineering of the world we live in. So with that, bear with me just a moment. Okay. Um, let's cover the book, The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians by Tobias Churton. Uh, the Order of the Rose Cross, or the Rosicrucians, popped up in the 1600s, and it caused quite a stir. Uh, a series of publications, uh, or, or published books, about four of them, uh, purporting to be from a group of individuals who'd come into sacred knowledge from adept masters. Uh, a product of the Enlightenment period, what was interesting about the Rosicrucian publications is, is that unlike their Enlightenment contemporaries, particularly in France, who were focused on a secular uh, approach or a break with religion, Rosicrucianism sought to reacquaint people with the sacred. There are elements of mysticism, alchemy, along with hermeticism and Near East beliefs. And when I say alchemy, I mean both chemistry alchemy as well as human alchemy. Um, and we covered human alchemy in the uh, program I covered on Living Resurrection. 
Now, I've personally visited the Rosicrucian Temple outside San Jose, California, and it's one of the most beautiful and stunning complexes you might ever see. Uh, you can go online and go look at pictures of it. Um, it has some of the brightest white coloring on the temple itself, and then the decorations on the tops of the pillars and things uh, are in lapis lazuli blue, just a, an incredibly stunning blue. And the campus itself outside the building really does make you feel like you've stepped back 5,000 years, uh, including the gardens that, that are behind the building. Now, in fairness to the book, there's a ton of material in there, and we don't have that kind of time. But the main bombshell or the main takeaway from the book is this. Rosicrucianism was born from a series of ideas from Enlightenment philosophers, but there was no original secret society or secret group of learned masters. Now, recall my program about living resurrection. I said on that program, certain themes keep reappearing in human history from the ancient world. The writers who created the Rosicrucian documents, in effect, created a mental or spiritual software program, or virus, if you will, who took hold in the minds of the people of that era. Now, for fans of the book Snow Crash, you'll definitely understand this correlation. They captured ideas people of faith were yearning for, but were denied by the main religions of that era. Put even more simply, by creating the idea there was a hidden group of people who were members of the Rose Cross Society, they in fact created Rosicrucianism. There was no group before, but it came into being by claiming there was such a group. The writings of that time said the group existed when in fact it wasn't there at all. Religious leaders of the time were combing Europe trying to find the leaders of the Rosicrucian movement any way they could. And of course, they found nothing only leading them to become more intensified in their efforts. The more they tried to destroy or stop such a movement, they gave it more life by focusing attention on the very ideas they were trying to repress. That's kind of amusing if you recall that failed Roman efforts to stamp out the early Christian faith before it too was co-opted by powerful elements in Rome years later. The writers of the Rosicrucian documents created a leaderless idea or a philosophy making it nearly impossible to stop. At its heart was to seek knowledge regardless of the source, whether Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or beliefs from the ancient past. Interestingly, they were also a reaction to both the Jesuit movement and repressive governments and religions of Europe. Per the author, you could make the argument the Rosicrucian movement was an intellectual exercise against the elites of that era. And that was achieved, by the way, as effectively as PSYOP programs today, but without the benefit of computer models or social media. Uh, the temple, Annie 14, is the Rosicrucian um, temple in San Jose, California. Uh, it also has some of the finest collection of private antiquities from Egypt uh, I've ever seen. Um, now, what does the narrative of that book have to do with the, the book Report from Iron Mountain? And by the way, the book Report from Iron Mountain is almost like, it's almost like Chairman Mao's red book. It's like a little tiny uh, book. Uh, and it, the book on the outside cover is littered with statements saying, this book is satire. There's no truth to what's in this book. We wrote this book as a joke. There's There's two opening statements in the book by the writers of the book saying, this is satire. We can't believe anybody took this seriously, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, my reaction to that is I would remind you all that Brave New World was meant to satire too. And that's also pretty close uh, of an outcome of what can happen when fascism and technocracy get their way. Yeah, so it was 1984 and Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> the yeah, on. the list goes on. <laughs> Uh, the report from Iron Mountain was meant as a think tank satire about the impossibility of peace given the global economy of that time. And by the way, 
I know they say satire, but I've read Rand reports and I've read, I've even written studies that were used by government agencies. Um, this thing looks, feels, and reads like exactly that type of material. They're not, there's no jokes in there or funny caricatures or whatever. It's, it's written in a very serious way. Um, very specifically, following World War II, the theme of the book was the United States was still operating essentially in a war economy. Therefore, completely slimming down our military to truly a defensive posture would entail what exactly, and is that even possible? Now, the writers of the book were Yale graduates who knew the think tank world well. And keep in mind, when I say think tank, I mean we've moved beyond big consulting firms like Bain and Company, McKinsey, Boston Consulting, and others. We're talking about the Rand Corporation, the Hoover Institute, my, my buddies over there at MITRE, uh, Brookings, uh, an outfit few of you have probably ever heard of called the MIT Lincoln Laboratory, and the list goes on. Simply put, Rand gives you a strategic approach to win the Cold War, no matter how brutally executed. McKinsey would tell you how to tweak your tactics and achieve your overall strategy. So as a result, the layout of the book and how the data presented isn't sensational in the least. It, like I said, it reads like what Rand would write. The rather serious aspect of the books includes also how computer algorithmic modeling would be used to develop such a scenario. Now, you have to remember, this book was written in like 1965. And even then, the authors of this satire book related how accurate forecasting and planning by the government was already being achieved by computer modeling. Now consider the kind of modeling we can do today, 60 years later. And what's deeply serious to me about the book is the immense logic of how it approaches what one would loosely call the problem of peace. By the way, it also quotes actual research papers and studies from the air on several topics. That's very important. The book isn't just their various ponderings about this topic. They're quoting a ton of other material written in that era about this topic. The book goes into how deeply ingrained defense spending and assets were in most of the 20th century in the major countries of that time. Case in point, would we have reached the moon if it hadn't been for the V-2 ballistic missiles? of World War II and equally many of today's larger commercial aircraft, you have to remember, were built to military specifications first. The influence of planning for war and the management of conflict is ingrained in every part of our economy. Specifically from the book, and I quote from page 41, quoting now, without singling out any one of the several major studies of the expected impact of disarmament on the economy for special criticism, we can summarize our objections to them in general terms as follows. Number one, no proposed program for economic conversion to disarmament sufficiently takes into account the unique magnitude of the required adjustments it would entail. Item two, proposals to transform arms production into a beneficial scheme of public works are more the products of wishful thinking than realistic understanding of the limits of the American economy. Number three, fiscal and monetary measures are inadequate as controls for the process of transition to an arms-free economy. Four, insufficient attention has been paid to the political acceptability of the objectives of the proposed conversion models, as well as the political means to be employed in creating such a transition. Number five, no serious consideration has been given in any proposed conversion plan to the fundamental non-military function of war and armaments in modern society, nor has any explicit attempt been made to devise a viable substitute for it, end quote. Now, this is when it becomes rather serious considering recent history. One of the biggest proposed means to shift from the global economy or global war economy to another model was via space exploration. 
Many of the same assets would be involved, including human, of the same defense industries that could be leveraged in a, ship to, in a shift to space exploration and moving global economies away from conflict and towards more peaceful purposes. And of course, this is where I would, I would throw out the sidebar. Why did John F. Kennedy want to go to the moon again? And how much of our gross domestic product were we spending on space and in equally all the programs that existed at that time in our U.S. school system? There's a number of papers and even books I've read that have described how all the investments in science and in our school system during the years of building for the moon launches provided the very talent that helped us create Silicon Valley and many of the successful industries from the later 1970s, 80s, and 90s. All of that was a byproduct of the investment we made in our education system. The book explains if such an attempt was made, it would require every major country on earth to develop considerable planning for such a conversion. It goes on to say such a plan would require about 12 years or more to implement. When I read the part about 12 years, the first idea that came into my mind was the opening of the movie Executive Action. I'm going back to executive action again. In the opening scene of that film, a group of corporate leaders are concerned because John F. Kennedy's administration could lead to Bobby running for office after him and potentially Ted Kennedy after that, essentially meaning a Kennedy dynasty of potentially as many as 24 years, more than enough time to fulfill such a 12-year plan to migrate the economy away from war towards something different. Another quote from the book on page 49, and I quote, only in comparatively recent times has it been considered politically expedient to euphemize war budgets as defensive requirements. The necessity for governments to distinguish between aggression, bad, and defense, good, has been a byproduct of rising literacy and rapid communication. The distinction is tactical only, a concession to the growing inadequacy of ancient war organizing political rationales, unquote. Now consider that quote in the context of both social media of the last 20 years and the disclosures around Twitter the last 20 days. Other content from the book delves into elements beyond economics, such as political and sociological importance of war or the threat of conflict. Namely, it provides a political justification for the state and its leaders and provides an important demarcation of differing philosophies to peoples of the state. You know your beliefs and where you stand based on what your position is on defense. To quote H.L. Mencken, the famous commentator, and I quote, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary, unquote. Now let's consider all the clamoring about Western governments that we, the people, believe them about the war in Ukraine. In conclusion, consider the following, and that would be this. A series of ideas fall on ripe soil in the 1600s and eventually lead to the creation of what we know as the Rosicrucian movement, a movement who in turn inspired or influenced several like-minded groups, including the Masonic Order achieved in a growing population of improved education thanks to the printing press, the European Enlightenment, and other contributing factors. Not the least of which is a bunch of really rich guys were pondering what tweaking with the world we live in might create. In the 1960s, we have a published book who looks, sounds, and feels like a high-end think tank study, but who is constantly identified as satire and not based on reality yet speaks to the very real and factual problems with ceasing what Eisenhower referred to as the military-industrial complex, 
And as I'm fond of saying, the conceptual data is released as fiction to communicate fact. We know folks like Peter Thiel and others have been heavily involved in social engineering types of ideas, but also implementations. And as I've said often on Rogue, Thiel's reason for his involvement in Facebook from the start was not to make money, but to test out social theories by using Facebook as a mechanism by which to test those theories. We also know Bill Gates, like his father, is heavily involved in eugenics philosophies, just as Elon Musk has relatives who helped found the technocracy movement. There's also something deeper, and yes, it does lead back to John F. Kennedy. Donald Sutherland's character in the movie JFK was based on Fletcher Prouty, a major brain in military science at that time. His famous line from the movie, and I quote, Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? And who has the power to cover it up? Unquote. Now, I'm not trying to delve into the JFK topic per se, but it does relate. It's the bigger backdrop. We have examples throughout history of stories being told who are either A, a set of major events in motion via something who at first doesn't seem that substantial, or B, we have countless truths being told through fiction, the former being the Rosicrucian example and the latter being the report from Iron Mountain. And what it says about not just our post-Bretton Woods world and the coming digital economy, but why managed conflict is so integral to the world we live in. I yield the floor, gentlemen. You covered up. A whole litany of things. That's and, a whole um, bunch of shit right there. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of gets to the whole philosophical root of of both the technocrats, the globalists, you know, and the various. I mean, I mean, technocrats are under the umbrella of the globalists, but or or is it the globalists under the umbrella of the technocrats? You can you know argue back and forth, but it kind of gets you know what you're saying is that it it gets to the crux. Of what these guys are. These are individuals who think they can manage everything. These are individuals who think they have it all pegged, they have it all figured out, that manage conflict is just a part of life. And it's going to be interesting to see that, you know, a lot of these things, especially, you know, the last uh, 50 years, 60 years have really taken off. And now that system, the lifeblood that provides that system with the 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 reach and the leverage that it always or can i say uh it has always enjoyed de facto you know is now about to really run dry it's about to like put that whole entire system over the edge so to speak and so it's 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 incredible and i and, and the question always becomes velas Will these guys go quietly to the night, or what is the next thing that they're going to do to keep themselves in power? Right. I uh, there's a lot there's a lot there to to what you said, and what equally is rattling in my brain as well as, as I as I review everybody's comments uh, in the comments section. Um, a even among the elite, I always count on their inability to contain their own egos. And as oh, yeah. I've mentioned on other shows, when I've worked with senior executives, I, I made mention of, of someone I worked with at GE, but, but they weren't the only example of this. And this, this was on steroids in Washington. Many of these, these, I use the word powerful loosely, but many of these powerful people are so jacked to the nines because they themselves have created such complex, convoluted plans in order to hold the positions of power they have that they themselves believe in as many conspiracies and plots as they themselves are involved in. 
And so I've seen people in government and in large corporate keyword, large corporations, prey on other people's paranoia. It's like the Rosicrucian example. Well, there's this group out there and they've evidently come across sacred knowledge and it's a direct threat to the Catholic Church and the rising Protestant faiths. Holy shit, we got to stop that. And it's like the more they try and rub it out, the more people are like scratching their heads saying, and what exactly is the reason why you want to stop this supposed Rosicrucian group? Well, they talk about an individual relationship with God and self-discovery and and learning on your own without us telling you what to do. (laughs) Why is that a problem again? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it it is, uh, and this is this is where I'm I'm dangerously close to falling over the edge into Jet Blake's universe. This is when we start getting into um, how much of the world we live in, and we, and as human beings, and as spiritual spiritual beings having having a physical reality, and the list goes on. How much of this is a great spiritual machine that is constantly working its way always back to entropy and balance? Um, the other thing too is, uh, when I worked in the auto industry, there was a guy I worked with, God, he was hilarious. He was getting a master's degree in physics, but he and I were both working at a large car parts warehouse place after college because we just needed a place with flexible hours so we could go to grad school. And he always was chewing gum, like a big, massive wad of gum while he's over in the tire (laughs) tire section and you'd always have these midwestern jeep owners coming in saying well i want this uh, this big ass rim with these huge ass tires and the guy would just be there chewing his gum and he would always keep saying well it's about the harmonics man it's about the harmonics and a bunch of people uh, working the parts counter with me would say what is he talking about he says the harmonics and i said well (laughs) if you look at some of these these big ass sports car engines and stuff that we've worked on here because it was it was a very large facility and i said Sometimes you hit the right RPMs in an engine, and, and V, I know I'm talking talking right at you with this, and mm-hmm. you hit a, a, a harmonic, a vibration in the engine that causes the whole thing to start falling apart because it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, the platform, whatever it was, could handle, or your big spinning wheels on your Jeep can handle certain speeds. But if you take that thing out on the highway, you're going to reach a level of speed where it's just going to throw off your steering and you're going to kill yourself. And it's yep. the same thing with what we're talking about. These people put these big convoluted plans into play. The other aspect that I heard both when I was in Silicon Valley as well as with, with consulting groups in Washington was the acceleration. You'll, we say it. You know, we hear the world, well, things are moving very quickly. It's like, man, if you go back to the 1600s, I mean, the, the Rosicrucian thing took decades dare one even say 100 or 200 years to really come to fruition from the seeds that were planted. And I've read carefully of the people who really were the influencers behind the Rosencrucian movement, and it was an incredibly clever move on their part. You have a spiritual faithful that are unfulfilled by the faith they have or the religions they have, and so they introduced a virus. They introduced the Roger Bannister four-minute mile. It's impossible to run a mile in under four minutes. Yeah, but this guy named Roger Bannister just did it. Oh, yeah. well, I guess it is feasible. And then all of a sudden, people start beating the four-minute mile. All of these things relate that I'm talking about. And so, and and by the way, folks, man, I got to tell you, uh, I was rereading a little bit of it last night. Um, The Iron Mountain book, um, Holy shit. I mean, the stuff that's in that book, 
it's not earth shatteringly like you know very specific about and therefore we're going to create social media we'll call they'll call it social media later but we're going to give darpa all this money and they're going to do this thing but in a very baseline way the way that that book which is satire there's no truth to this uh lays out very specific examples at a sociological level an economic level at a political level why conflict since the ancient world to now i wouldn't say has to be there but one could even go in the direction of we as a species evidently are just yet not brave enough to say we got to shut it all down now i know you delve into the kennedy thing and it's it's just a a endless morass of space aliens and marilyn monroe but in all seriousness (laughs) When you consider, because you know, there's a group of folks out there, and I understand why they feel this, who point to the state of Israel and Numec, and what happened with Numec and the 800 pounds of missing uh, nuclear material. Do I believe that played a role in the Kennedy assassination? Absolutely 100%. Do I believe that was the sole, because we're, we're back on my favorite narrative. What was the Jews again? Oh, God, stop with that, please. It's, it's, it's murder no. on the Orient Express again, bro. It, well, and that's a very excellent example because everybody's in on it. And that's exactly everybody's it. There were so yeah. many players, so many powerful interests who, when told, wait a minute, you're going to do what? Yeah, we're going to start a 12-year program and we're going to shift energy towards space, which is really expensive right now. It'll The costs will come down. But we're basically trying to fly a 65 Mustang to the moon because the technology we had during those flights was about as advanced. I mean, when you yeah. consider that we, we sent three guys on a pressurized canister to the moon with really very limited calculation capability as far as the computers on board that thing, and that, yes, it is true. Test pilots like eyeballed the landing on the moon for God's sakes with no prior experience. Holy shit. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, and we're going to take all of that big industrial manufacturing capability. We're going to take all the ship building and all the submarine building and all the aircraft building and all the avionics and all the missiles and those ex Nazis we got down in Huntsville, Alabama. And we're going to take all of that and we're going to shift the global economy to something that isn't as fixated on war. And it's like, but John, come on, man. I mean, no one is seriously going to launch a nuclear missile at each other. I mean, first of all, we spend a lot of money on these missiles. I mean, if we if we launch them, we're, we're out a lot of money. But the second thing is, is it's like, we're not actually going to have a global war. We're just pretending like we're going to have one because it keeps the economy running. It's like, well, what if we tried something different? Uh, hey, are you in? Are you in Dallas next week? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> the weather's going to be great from what we hear. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a good time down there, right until you hit. Make sure you have a convertible top down. <laughs> you should drive by the book depository. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. To make sure Jackie's wearing that pink dress that she likes. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you, honest to God, folks, as somebody who who dabbled and wrote. I didn't write the big, big reports, but I still wrote some stuff that was was six, seven hundred pages with with a number of people helping me do it for for Homeland Security and a couple other agencies. When you really read, because whenever you've seen MITRE reports on the internet or whatever, I know some of us have seen the ones about. I mean, hell, we just talked on Rogue News what two, three months ago about. I use the word loosely. Somebody leaked the MITRE report about how to destabilize Russia by putting pressure on Ukraine. 
I mean, they advised the government on that, what, four or five years ago about yeah. here's how you do it. And that's, that's what these big think tanks do. And equally, coming yet full circle one more time, this comes into why, why, we talked about this on another road show, why that thing about the book, the Adam and Eve story, and the guy who debriefed the CIA about his book, and then they went out and bought up all the copies of his book. And then, of course, there's very Yeah, could you refresh my, our, our memory with that again, the, the Adam and sure. Eve uh, story? Yeah, the, the researcher who did that, and he's he's pre-Graham Hancock, he's pre-the uh, guy who's on Cosmographia, he's he's pre-Freddie Silva, all, all the big names now that have been working the alternative history post, post and pre-Ice Age stuff. This was a guy, big math guy, big modeling guy, who said uh, it's pretty obvious that that all of human society has nearly gone extinct several times. And he, he laid out a number a number of models and showed that whether due to planetary impact or and there's a guy on YouTube who has a channel on this, folks. Um, you know, we always think of stars going nova as like the entire star has exploded and taken out its solar system and this that and the other. There's a number of researchers who are now of the belief and based on observing, thanks to things like the the Webb Telescope, that stars have what are known as micronovas where basically they just <laughs> come down with the flu and kick out a whole bunch of... I don't mean a solar flare. I mean, like, basically a mini a mini nova. The star is fine. It continues burning for, for millions, billions of years. But they do have these little micro-nova events. And mm. the guy who wrote the Adam and Eve story, you know, threw out there and said, I leave it to others to figure out. Did the sun have a micro-nova and half the Earth got incinerated and the other half tried to survive were we hit by planetary impacts like graham hancock and others have suggested he wasn't as concerned about that but he looked at the archaeological record he looked at the geological record and said that there you can't have this much of a race memory around the world from people who either had limited or no contact to each other and yet they're all telling the same stories it's like my thing about the, the the seven the seven serpents or the seven maidens in the sky with long hair mm -hmm. the reference to the the seven large planetary bodies that that struck the earth uh, causing the, the first ice age so what happened was that guy gave a separate debriefing at langley at the cia headquarters back in the 1960s to a number of the big brain types that deal with conflict and how to sustain the united states by any means necessary and by the time you know it was a multi-hour debriefing and by the time he was done somebody whipped out the checkbook and literally they sent fbi agents to go do it they sent other uh, contractors to go do it they went and bought up both from the publisher and any bookstores who had copies of his book and they just erased the memory of his book. Now, his book is out there, and I know there was some chatter on Discord. The, the main thing, folks, is, is that there's somewhere between one to four chapters that are missing from the copy you can buy today on mm. uh, Amazon. Now, I did post in the resources section and on the Velos page, and if you can't find it, just reach out to me on Discord. I'll, I'll direct you where to go. Quote, unquote, we're pretty sure, and when I say we, I mean all of us on Discord, we're pretty sure we found the correct copy with the missing sections. 
And so we wow. can we can direct you to that. Now, was it was it all that earth shattering to this audience? Because you're all very smart yeah. and well well read people, uh, and especially after the whole Graham Hancock thing and all of that, probably not that much. It just kind of reinforces what authors today are saying. But again, we have to remember the guy who wrote the Adam and Eve story. He wrote that shit back in like '64. I mean, sure. right. you know, we we hadn't even gotten to Eric von Daniken yet by then. So it's yeah. like. This yeah. guy was talking about stuff that nobody was thinking about, but in the paranoid universe of Washington, you want to know something. Go ahead. There was a. Do you? I don't know if you know this, but in the seventeen late seventeen hundreds, there was a theologian by the name of G. H. Pember. Are you are you familiar with him? No, no, I have not heard of him. Let me let me pull pull pull, uh, pull this up. G. H. Pember. He wrote a book called Earth's earliest ages right and the lesson for us all right now that earth's sounds familiar yeah earth's earliest ages okay so let me pull this up there it is earth's earliest ages and and by the way folks if in doubt go to netflix and go watch the animated series inside job because in a comedic way they cover all of this oh god that's crazy it's so, one yeah, of those shows that I'm laughing, but I'm hurting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. I've seen I've seen that book cover. This was written in the 1700s, 1760, Brown. Really? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. G. H. Pember. Let me take it back over here. Okay, Earth's earliest ages. Here they have it on Amazon. Yeah, there you go. In modern spiritualism, theosophy, right? This was done in. Look, uh, I'm sorry, late 18th 19th century. century. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was written in the 18, 1860s, 1800s, right? G.H. Pember's Earth's Earliest Age is a book that might possibly be even more relevant in the 21st. In the ages, Pember's uh, oh my God, I know this word. Presently. Oh, pr- Presently, presently, there it is. Jesus, I was on the tip of my tongue. Observed the decline of the godly fear in society that was predicated, that was predicting the Bible. Pember details seven points in which Christians can discern the relentless. I mean, it's written from a Christian point of view, but he goes sure. into how, especially the alliance between the nominal church, the world, the vast increase of knowledge, the rejection of the preaching of Enoch. Uh, he goes into a lot of the antiquities about what the world was like and what brought a cataclysm. To that age, pretty interesting. John Michael Karma, that is awesome. Murder on the JFK Express. Murder on the JFK Express. Yeah, that's a good one. To uh, to yeah. quote the former editor of uh, Rolling Stone magazine, uh, Ben Fong Torres, mm, <laughs> I like what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> mm, so yeah. yeah. So yeah, I uh, I was reading. Uh, honest to God, the, today's program, folks, was I was reading through um, Iron Mountain, and I was as I was reading through it, and I'm considering the content of the book in the context of truth through fiction. It kind of popped into my head, and I thought, you know what, this reminds me of. This reminds me of the Rosicrucian. So I went and blew the dust yeah. off my my Rosicrucian book, and then it was like, oh, and then all we need now is the accelerated modeling of the Silicon Valley folks. I've said this on the show before, for those of you who recall 
the TV show Candid Camera, where Alan Fund would oh, yeah. open the show by looking at the audience and saying, "We thought it would be funny if if we had like a shopping cart that just moves on its own and see how scared people will be or whatever." And it's it's like the same thing with with uh, especially these big brains in Silicon Valley is is because uh, I was actually up at a club in San Jose with some colleagues for work and I got there about an hour early and I'm sitting at the bar and I joked with one of my coworkers from Boston uh, when when he was one of the first people who rolled in and I said you know it's funny I said you sit here and this is back in 2014 I said you sit in Silicon Valley at a private club like this and I said and all you hear are all these rich guys brandishing their really expensive watches talking about how much of a percentage of what vineyard in this state they think they own, the latest repairs they just made to their boat, and the next big thing they think they're investing in coming out of Silicon Valley. And it's like, mm-hmm. in that kind of environment, when you get a Peter Thiel <laughs> or an SBF, um, it's it's fairly SBF easy. Is a genius. He's a just a uh his brain is on loan from god um yeah i'm serious i i've i i'm in awe of him and we're we're so we're not worthy we're not worthy fellas we are not worthy and if he would just take a shower he'd be even better um even better but but yeah these (laughs) these these uh groups of people and stuff up in silicon valley there's little get-togethers they have usually on the coast and and yes it is true they they go up to the grove uh with bechtel and the rest of the folks up in northern california but You've got all these big brain folks that are so um, echo chamber. Uh, I used to run into that with with me uh, um, in Washington, where we would be interviewing certain leaders inside Homeland Security, and and my retired executives from you know major banks, insurance companies, pharmaceutical firms. The list goes on. I mean, that's why we had those guys and gals working for us was they'd had span of control as big as federal agencies. And yes, many of them had testified to Congress. And we would be sitting in front of a deputy secretary of an agency who's saying, well, you don't understand because, you know, the way things are right now and like my gray haired executives would just be sitting there looking at the person saying, we're saying this as respectfully as we can, and it's seven o'clock at night, and there's no feds in this building, and it's just you and us drinking coffee. You're in an echo chamber. You are so surrounded, not even by yes men and women, but you are so surrounded by the narrative that you've bought off on yeah. that your your ability to comprehend reality has gone right out the window. I mean, we would have men and women try and work for our firm where, where uh, people far smarter than me would advise my business colleague and me, you don't want to hire this person. You know, they, and I've used this right. phrase before on the show. They're, they're like a navigator from Dune. They're just a big head floating in, in spice. Um, they have a good haircut. <laughs> they look good on TV, but they couldn't write an, I'm quite literal when I tell you all this, they couldn't write a God darn email if their lives depended on it. They don't, they don't, they don't do that. They have staff who do that. Their job is to sit around the room and notice who's, it's almost like poker, who's sweating, who's twitching while they're trying to sell me some idea so that I know that that person is lying uh, out their ass and I'm not going to go with that idea. But they're so cut off from, dare one say, reality. In a strange way, they almost have to pay people to tell them what reality is. And that's where everybody from McKinsey to MITRE comes in. And in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of senior executives that, uh, I don't mean this way I'm saying it, but they don't really work per se. They've got a well-oiled machine underneath them. They, it's like it's like academics 
who never teach their own classes anymore. They've just got the teaching assistants doing it because they're out writing their next book. That kind of model, folks, I can't even begin to tell you, is so common in Silicon Valley, especially <laughs> some favorite friends of mine up in Stanford. Um, that's all they do is just sit around about, you know, well, what if we just removed a third of the world's population? What would that look like? I, 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 all of them, forecasting into a vacuum. Forecasting into a vacuum. Dude, these are all products of the drug that is called central banking. That's all they are. When you break it down to the very litmus of it all, these are not real captains of industry. These are not men who understand supply chain at a grand scale. These are mostly guys that have a very myopic view of the, even their own industries they work in. And these are men similar to the analogy of, hey, if you are fixated on trying to find white golf balls in a forest, anything that even remotely looks white is a golf ball. Talk about bias. There's a golf ball that's bouncing on the ground. Sir, sure, that's a rabbit. <laughs> Sir, that's, that's a rabbit. It's not a golf exactly. ball. Well, it's white. There's a golf ball there. That, that's a poisonous <laughs> mushroom. That's a mushroom, you idiot. Stop it. Stop it. Get some help, right? It's, it, dude, these are a bunch of junkies sitting around jerking each other off. That's all it is. Talking about, I mean, literally thinking. And if you, you line up any one of them, most of these men are, when you see them in a the, in the, in the physical form, they're very mediocre human beings in, in physical form, weak, fat, out of shape, disgusting, right? And you line them up, and every single one of them, yeah, where, you know, you ask them, is the United States the largest economy in the world? Yes. Is the United States the most powerful country, uh, military in the world? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, the lar we're this, we're that. It's a circle jerk. And, the, and you know the problem with this, with these the, the, the central bank junkies, these junkies that are living off the stimulus, that are living off the, uh, the concept of the central bank and fractional reserve lending, <sighs> we're the victims of their stupid decisions. That's what kills us. I had a I had a guy that was a former Navy SEAL who became an executive training other executives. Um, he was the most unassuming, non-threatening guy you ever met. But every one of us knew this guy could probably drop somebody at 500 feet with a pencil. Um, <laughs> and, and he would be sitting there talking to senior leaders from federal agencies. And, and he he <laughs> there were times that I was concerned about talking to him on a street corner to say, could you maybe tone I, this is coming from me. Could you tone that down just a touch when we're covering these topics with with our, our clients? But I remember him sitting there talking to them about he had worked for a very large insurance carrier out of Chicago. And he was explaining to a couple senior federal leaders where he said, uh, don't, don't beat yourselves up too much. I know you're all kind of thinking, uh, God, are, are, you know, are our heads so far up our rear ends that, that we're this devoid of reality? He's like, no, I just need to turn on a few room lights and you guys will be fine. And he started talking about board of directors, members of the insurance firm he'd worked for. And he's like, you have no idea what the hangups are of P you guys are still kind of human you still have a chance to make it he's like you have no idea the hang-ups of some of the people on the boards of directors like firms we used to work for he goes i'm not kidding these are people who have their favorite pair of women's underwear they have to wear when they go into that meeting or else they just can't function effectively their grasp on reality is just not there at all and the level of insecurity their level of insecurity is through the ceiling. It's it's like the really insecure kid in school who just wants somebody to sit next to them at lunch. And so they've got That's a whole bunch of others just, just like them sitting at the lunch table going, 
we're not weird. We're okay. <laughs> What's wrong with removing a third of humanity? <laughs> I'm surprised nobody thought of it before. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. So, with that being said, Ted, uh, Ted uh, what kind of a uh, what, what type of lingerie are you wearing underneath your suit? Oh, I'm wearing a I'm wearing a I'm wearing a g-string with frills. Oh, that's awesome. That I, that, I love. That's what we got, man. I love the exchange in the comment section about who drinks coffee at seven o'clock at night. And the next comment down was strippers from Green Machine. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Oh, baby. All righty, folks. Well, I wish you all a, a good New Year's and be safe and watch out for the crazy-ass drivers if you're out at New Year's parties. <laughs> exactly. We better yet to stay home and watch the ball drop. Yeah. That's a New York thing. With the watch. 10, you the know, 10 I, people I live in Manhattan York... to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the whole New York uh, ball drop thing twice in my life. Never again. Never again. You know, it's just like both times with like family and whatnot. I'm like, dude, I can't do this. Standing out there freezing my nuts off, watching a stupid ball drop. You can't even go pee. You pee. You. I was going to say, my first thought is always, where are the bathrooms? There isn't. You just sit there holding your piss. Uh, you know, like I, I, at some point, man, you, you're just like punching yourself in the balls because it feels better because it's so cold and you got to take a look. <laughs> you're just sitting there punching yourself in the nuts. You know, and just waiting for the stupid ball. And as soon as, because as soon as you leave the quadrant, because they, you know, the police they blockade quadrants, right? You right. can't once you leave, okay? Once now you, you can't leave. leave. Now you can't leave. So once you get into the block, you can't leave. Now you can't leave. And then, and good luck. And, and all the stores are closed. You can't go nowhere to find a bathroom. Maybe a dark alley. You might get lucky, but I don't know how these people do, man. You're sitting there, you're freezing cold. You know. Done. I'm never doing that again. And this is before I, I I I learned of adult diapers. So this was going, you know, I was fresh out of college. This is uh before I was like, what? They make adult diapers? Then I was thinking to myself, the 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 how badly I needed to pee. I don't think an adult diaper would have held it, fellas. <sighs> it's all fun and games until you're wearing it. Depends. Yeah, it totally is. We're all heading there. God help us. Well, and you you and I both know that in in New York. <laughs> Because I I've been in in the old days I was in Manhattan where uh, my my Greek buddies were telling me, uh, hey you need to keep a couple of tens and twenties on you in your wallet you know not too much we don't want to get robbed, and I'm like why do I need all this cash and they're like well so you can pay to use the bathroom <laughs> these these yep. restaurants aren't just gonna let you use the bathroom. Yep, exactly. CJ, are you still with us, man? Yep. No, he fell asleep. Happy, happy oh, New Year's, everyone. Yep. Enjoy your enjoy your weekend I, and be safe. I got CJ up in the AWACS making it all happen, man. CJ's a trafficker and he traffics tequila. That's right. Watch out. He he holds tequila against the tequila's will. And he drinks them until they're empty. By the way, folks, some excellent Trash Panda memes on the Discord page. My thanks. Uh, Hobo Sermons, you know who you are. Siege, next week, let's just set up a Shopify store and let's start selling this stuff. Trash Pandas and all this other stuff on there. There we go. Yeah, that's what we're gonna do for New Year's. That's gonna be your pro- mining your projects each for New Year. We're gonna set up a <laughs> Shopify store. We're gonna have all these cool T-shirts and designs. We're gonna start pumping. We ain't waiting for nobody. Well, our audience has already produced so much, uh, so much content. content. Yeah, man, absolutely, absolutely. All right, folks. With that being said, we are at the end of the broadcast, end of the week, the last broadcast of twenty twenty two. Twenty two. 
Oh my God, we're Truly. entering to. Yeah, we're entering to 2023 in a matter of hours, uh, in 48 hours or so. And as the great Samuel Jackson said in the movie Jurassic Park, hold, hold on, on to your butts. Your butts. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, CJ, take it away. 